Welcome to Cato Audio for February 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Stephanie Halfley details lessons from regulatory policy. Wei Wanzhou explores how China's trade practices are handled by the World Trade Organization. Greg Nojaim details the trouble with an America First surveillance policy. And Chip Gibbons explains the FBI's problems with the First Amendment. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In these uncertain times for freedom around the globe, uh, it's important to sort of reckon with exactly what drives human freedom and uh, what we can do to promote it around the planet uh, and to discuss the Human Freedom Index, a new product of the Cato Institute produced for the last uh, several years, co-published with the Fraser Institute and the Liberalis Institute in Germany. I'm talking with Ian Vasquez, who's the head of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute, and Mustafa Akiol, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, also with the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So Thank you. Let, let's begin with uh, with this. Um, you know, I feel like we seem like a broken record, Ian, every time we sit down and talk about either the economic freedom of the world or the human freedom index. And what is the state of human freedom on planet Earth and, and how should we uh, think about it? Well, uh, what we do with the Human Freedom Index is take a look at all sorts of indicators of economic, personal, and civil freedom. So when we talk about freedom, what we're talking about is the absence of coercive constraint. And so we're looking at 76 different indicators in each country for 162 countries over the course of uh, many years. And so I think that what this index does is it presents a, a reasonably accurate picture of the state of freedom in the world and the state of freedom within countries. And one of the things that we've seen starting in 2008, is, which is the date uh, for which we have uh, the earliest data, that surprisingly there's a lot of personal freedom data that didn't exist globally before then, uh, till, till this latest report. Uh, you see a slight decrease in human freedom around the world with a number of countries increasing, a number of countries decreasing. In fact, the number of countries decreasing their levels of freedom uh, are greater than the number of countries that have increased. 79 have decreased their freedom, 61 countries have increased their freedom over that period of time. And has also included the time of the financial crisis and then recovery from them. So you you see a dip in in some kinds of freedom, especially in the developing in the developed uh, countries that responded to that crisis with uh, increases in the size of government and so on. And uh, many have now recovered in terms of, of freedom from th those points. Some not yet fully of most interest to our audience that is overwhelmingly in the United States. How has the U.S. performed on uh, the Human Freedom Index since 2008 and in this new report? Well, I think most Americans and much of the world think of the United States as the beacon of freedom uh, in the world. And historically, I think that has largely been true. But when we put together the, this index, we rank the United States as number 15 out of 162 countries. That's still fairly free compared to the rest of the world, but I think it's not as free as many of us would like and certainly not as free as many of us think the United States uh, is. And um, one of the reasons is because since the year 2000, the United States has seen a long-term decline in terms of its economic freedom that only in recent years has started to go back up again and yet uh, it is still far below what it was in the year 2000. And in the decades uh, previous to that, uh, the United States always ranked on uh, economic freedom uh, rankings second or third or fourth place, and then it started to go down. And so that has played a big role. And has that been driven by, uh, that ranking has been driven by an actual decline in economic freedom 
within the United States and not by uh, uh, unnecessarily other countries leapfrogging the US and dramatically increasing uh, economic, civil, and uh, personal freedom. The fall in its in its rankings is a reflection of the fall in its actual score and its actual ratings. And if you look again at the economic freedom ratings, all the the big indicators uh, have seen a, a big fall in their scores. The size of government, the rule of law, uh, whether the country has sound money or not, uh, freedom to trade regulation of business and labor and so on from the year 2000. Again, these started to recover uh, somewhat in the last several years. All right. Uh, to you, Mustafa Akiel, tell me about uh, the worlds that you study uh, and the countries that uh, are you know, predominantly Muslim countries. How have they performed in, in the last 10 years or so? They have not per performed very well, and you can see this clearly in the uh, in the, in the freedom index, human freedom index. Uh, the part of the world that I'm really focusing on is, as you said, is the Muslim world. And uh, you can selectively look at the uh, human freedom index and look at the Muslim majority countries. There are about 47 Muslim majority countries. I especially look at those and how they're doing. On average, uh, the freedom levels of the broader Muslim world, these, these 47 countries, uh, are way below North American and European average and even the world average. So these are probably the least free parts of the world. Uh, there's a clear problem here. However, th there are also important nuances that has to be seen. The least free Muslim majority countries, which are also the least free countries right now on earth, according to the Human Freedom Index, are Syria and Yemen. And why? Well, they're torn by civil war. Then then is also Iraq, partly, you know, has gone through a lot of violence, intercommunal violence. So uh, a part of this grim picture comes from civil wars that are due to political factors. Sometimes you can blame outside powers for those, Western powers or Russia or other powers. Uh, so, but when you leave war aside, you again see limited freedom in many Muslim-majority countries, especially in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the country with the least religious freedom in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, North Korea is not there, so we can measure with that, but it's it's one of the lowest uh, religious freedom factors in the whole Muslim world. That's the least religiously free country, for example. And, and data shows that, and I know that by experience. I mean, in Saudi Arabia, there's not a single church or synagogue. I mean, yes, I know that you know, from reality and when I look into data, I says, yes, this confirms that. On the other hand, there are Muslim majority countries that are actually relatively quite free, uh, according to world average. Uh, which are those? Well, two of them are in East Europe, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Albania. These are Muslim majority countries uh, and their freedom levels are close to Greece and Argentina. Uh, they're about world average. Why? Well, they're Muslim-majority countries, but they have secular governments and, and they have a tradition of more liberal interpretations of they Islam. Are, they're Western. They're Western. That's part. That's true. Uh, there are also countries like Kazakhstan, for example, which have pretty good levels of women's freedom. Uh, Kazakhstan is a Muslim-majority country, but there is no big traditional patriarchal religious interpretation there that puts women, women at odds. West African Muslim states are not doing too bad. I mean, Senegal, you know, Burkina Faso, these are the countries that you don't hear that much in the news for anything. They have traditional interpretations of Islam that are not fundamentalist and so on. Whereas when you come to Iran, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, you get into the really dark uh, picture where freedoms are really crushed. So, uh, Ian, to you, uh, these are questions I ask you every year. Um, but uh, I'll say this, what, when a country is in a good neighborhood with respect to freedom, as of talking about Albania and Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, being essentially Western countries, uh, how helpful is it to be bordered by countries that are relatively more free? I think it's helpful. Um, I will say that we look at 10 different regions in the world in the Human Freedom Index, and one of them is the Middle East and North Africa, which of course covers part of the Muslim world, 
it includes Israel as well, but for the, for the most part, these are Muslim countries. And we find that that is the least free region in the world. It's also the region that has lost the greatest amount of freedom uh, since 2008. So that's a worrisome uh, indicator. But I think that what Mustafa was uh, saying is important. Not all of the Muslim world performs that way, and and he gave uh, some examples. So that's important. This is a pattern we see in different parts of, of the world, but we also see divergences. Um, several decades ago, it would be easier to say that most of Latin America performs similarly. That's no longer the case. First of all, for most of, of the region, freedom has increased, like in much of the world uh, during that time period. But then we've seen countries like Venezuela, like Argentina, uh, take a dive in terms of uh, overall freedoms, not just economic uh, freedoms. And so you see countries that have been very successful, like Peru and Chile, and in terms of um, increasing their levels of overall freedom, and countries that are, are going backward, even in the same neighborhood, so to speak. So uh, what are the, the relationships among economic, personal, uh, and civil freedom? Uh, you know, what is, can you point to a driver and say, this gives rise to the others? I think that uh, it may be premature to, to say that, but one thing that we can say is that economic freedom and personal freedom are, are strongly associated. And so uh, I like to say that if you want to live in a country with a relatively high level of, of personal freedoms, you should want to live in a country with a relatively high level of economic freedom. It's hard to maintain those other freedoms if you don't have economic freedom to accompany it. I mean, somebody once said that the control of economics is the control of life itself, which is true. That's one of the reasons why dictators like to control <laughs> the economy. They get control over every other decision in life uh, that, that you have. And so that relationship is important. And I think that that's one of the important findings of the Human Freedom Index, because there are a lot of uh, genuine advocates of human rights, press freedoms, and so on, who don't uh, often enough fully appreciate the importance of economic freedom as part of the broad freedoms that we should cherish. I can remember a, a few years ago, we had a lot of uh, refugees or people coming from Cuba. Uh, many of these people were, uh, NPR had sort of uh, characterized them as economic refugees, not political refugees, as if this made uh, their plight less serious. And uh, I, I guess I guess that's maybe a, a pervasive attitude of, among uh, folks in the media that if you're trying to get a better life economically, that that's somehow uh, not as oppressive. You weren't coming from as oppressive a regime if, say, your right to vote was being abrogated. And it's not just a, a perception that might exist in the media. It's also legal uh, understanding uh, that the U.S. Law for um, allowing some kinds of refugees in is more permissive if they're uh, actually suffering from other kinds of deprivations or repression of uh, of their rights. So, um, how did North America do? The United States, Canada, Mexico were about to uh, sign off finally on a revised North American free trade agreement called something else. But um, you know, how are our neighbors doing? Well, actually, um, as I say, the United States is number 15, but Canada is one of the freest countries in the world. It's number four uh, on our ranking. The top countries are New Zealand, followed by Switzerland and Hong Kong, and then Canada, followed by Australia and Denmark and Luxembourg. So we're in a good neighborhood, but uh, Mexico falls uh, way behind. It really performs uh, in a very uh, mediocre way. It's number 92. And that's really one of the big disappointments of Latin America. The United States borders Mexico. It's had a free trade agreement with it for years, which has benefited it and the United States tremendously. Uh, but for that reason and the whole host of other advantages that Mexico should have, we should expect 
really that Mexico should be the star performer of Latin America, and it hasn't been the case. And that's because of uh, a, a number of reforms that they simply have not done, as has been the case in, in other Latin American countries. And this has been one of its huge problems. It's still, still a country with very mediocre levels of, of economic freedom. It's almost as if it were two countries, the country that is engaged internationally with all of its free trade uh, agreements and so on, and that performs very competitively in its export sector and anything that's connected to it. And then the rest of the country that has not been connected to that side of the economy. And so you have kind of two Mexicos, and this has been a problem that has not been resolved in Mexico through the necessary reforms. Uh, I, I think also that that uh, has also led to tremendous uh, frustrations that in turn have generated uh, support for the current populism in the country right now. So, um, you know, going forward, uh, you said that the data that we uh, have for the Human Freedom Index essentially begins in 2008. A lot of this data was not available, but of course, the uh, uh, Economic Freedom of the World Index has been produced for far longer than that. Um, and of course, data lags uh, behind events. Right now, we're watching unrest in Hong Kong. There's unrest in France. Uh, and several countries, uh, really. So, you know, watching those events unfold now, where should we expect, or can we have any expectations for a country like Hong Kong that that for so long has been one of the freest in the world? The unrest that's going on in Hong Kong really represents a battle for freedom uh, against one of the most uh, uh, one of the most threatening. Uh, tyrannies and strengthening tyrannies in the world, which is, of course, China. And so this was a battle that's important, not just for Hong Kong, but for uh, the rest of the world as we try to figure out how to deal with uh, with the, with the, uh, the growing uh, dictatorship and the power of that dictatorship in China and in the region. Uh, I'm not terribly optimistic about uh, Hong Kong because uh, Hong Kong has been uh, a beacon of freedom. It's been number one on our indexes up until recently. It's still number one in terms of economic uh, freedom. But to the extent that uh, China increases its interventions in, in Hong Kong, um, it'll lead to continued deteriorations in the rule of law and in press freedoms. We're already seeing that happen. We have, Our data goes up to 2017 because that's how uh, the, the data lags. Uh, but we have seen this deterioration in, in Hong Kong uh, over the course of that time period. And I think that um, we can expect that, unfortunately, that trend to continue. Hong Kong is still a very free place and the, the Hong Kong uh, people are are still cherishing their freedoms very much. One of the things they don't have is, of course, political freedom, and that's one of the things that they're, they're calling for. They view, and I think uh, it, it is now becoming true, the, um, it, they view democracy as one of the mechanisms by which they can guarantee a high level of freedom. I think that's true in their case at this point, where we see what uh, Beijing is doing. And uh, in fact, in the Human Freedom Index, we correlate the level of overall human freedom with uh, democracy, and we find a very strong relationship. As we know, it's sometimes under democracy, we can lose freedoms, and that certainly happened in many countries. Uh, so that's not a guarantee uh, that freedom will, will be maintained or maintained at a high rate. In fact, um, I expect that if Hong Kong does become democratic at some point, its economic freedom will probably go down. A lot of the people who are advocating for democracy also believe in a lot more types of government interventionism, which we believe reduces people's freedom of choice, but not in any way that is unusual for developed countries. Who are some of the biggest surprises? 
I know that in Africa, we always point to Mauritius as a, a, a country that performs above expectations. Uh, Mauritius is, of course, very small, uh, fairly isolated. Um, but what what were some of the countries that are that are big surprises, big gainers, or big losers? Well, over the course of a couple of years, you don't usually see big increases or big drops. Even over the course of ten years or or less, you don't see tremendous uh, changes. But if you look at the top quartile of countries in the Human Freedom Index, one thing really stands out, and that is that. Uh, Countries from around the world are represented in, in that group of the freest countries in the world. And if you were to have created an index like this 30 years ago, that simply would not be the case. Today, we have several countries in, in Asia that are in the, in the top. It's not just Hong Kong. It's uh, Japan. It's Taiwan. Uh, we have, of course, North American countries. We have European countries. We even have Chile and Uruguay. This is Latin America. Uh, Mauritius is a, a country that comes in uh, in 50th place. So it's close, uh, but that's a, a symbol of progress as well because uh, it just it didn't used to be that uh, you could find very many uh, sub-Saharan African countries moving up. Uh, and there are others, uh, Suriname and uh, Ghana and so on, that perform uh, well. Uh, another thing I should mention is that the quartile of the freest countries in the index also includes a number of formerly socialist countries, like Estonia uh, and like Lithuania, uh, like uh, Poland and so on. This is another measure of the tremendous progress that the world has made in terms of freedom and that freedom works not just in the Anglo-Saxon countries or not just in the Western European countries, and it can be achieved and sustained by all sorts of different societies and people from around the world. So, uh, but the unfortunate uh, fact for countries like uh, Estonia is that they have a fairly recent experience with being dominated uh, under socialism. That is an unfortunate fact. But <laughs> right, the unfortunate fact is that they've gotten that, they've gotten away from that. But is that is that a is that a pre not a prerequisite? But is that a, that is a lot of countries that suffered under uh, communism or, or socialism uh, a few decades ago have not necessarily achieved. The kind of results that Estonia has. That's right. Uh, we we now have had some thirty years or so of experience in the so-called uh, transition era from the the plan to the market, and some countries have done much better than others in terms of uh, not just reforms but economic growth and achievement of uh, human well-being. And what we found is that the countries that did the most far-reaching, most comprehensive reforms in the fastest period of time achieved the best results, including in terms of institutional development, uh, the development of the rule of law, the development of uh, democratic institutions. They're stronger in those countries that did the more uh, far-reaching reforms as compared to ones like Russia or in uh, Central Asia that really didn't do much in terms of, of reforms and they're lagging in terms of freedom and in a lot of other indicators as well. I think that the countries that did the most to reform and have reaped the, the best, uh, the, the greatest benefits are also well placed to maintain them as, as uh, more than, than, the other than many other countries because the experience with c communism is, is still not that far away. And uh, this is not an abstract concept for much of the population. And that helps. Yeah. Uh, Mustafa, with respect to your home country, Turkey, uh, what can we say about it? Well, when the Human Freedom Index came out, uh, one of the first things I did was to look at Turkey. How's it doing? And uh, of course, Turkey is one of the big disappointments, I mean, from a freedom perspective. It's one of the actually countries which had the 
most dramatic decline in its freedom in the past decade. But also there was something interesting. Uh, when you look at from 2008 to today, 2017, you, uh, which is all under Erdogan, President Erdogan, he was prime minister back then. First, you see actually an increase in freedom until 2011. These were the good years of Erdogan and his party AKP. I personally was sympathetic at the time. And then you start to see a U-turn and then a very dramatic decline, which is what political observers would think what happened. And I'm, I was happy to see that our data really confirms that. Uh, I think Turkey has become an example of a country where democracy, quote unquote, means nothing other than ballots and rule of law, freedom of the press, freedom of just expression are just decimated. If, a, if, if democracy, quote unquote, means just ballots, whoever gets 51% can establish a tyranny of the majority. And we know that from, you know, we know that from history, from theory. And I think Turkey has been that, uh, has been a stark example of that. I still hope for a recovery for Turkey in the future. So I think it's not a done deal. Uh, but right now, its freedom ratings have gone dramatically low, and uh, it's one of the worrying cases in the world. The Human Freedom Index is uh, co-published with the Fraser Institute and the Liberales Institute in Germany. Thank you to Ian Vasquez and Mustafa Akiol. Uh, you can get your copy of the Human Freedom Index at our website, cato.org. Policy interventions often carry unintended consequences. In Stephanie Halfley's co-edited volume, The Need for Humility in Policymaking, Lessons from Regulatory Policy, the authors make the case that the complexity of human decision-making and the incentives that drive human behavior are critical to understanding the effects of policy. She spoke at the Cato Institute in January. Great, thank you Chelsea and the Cato Institute for inviting us to do a book forum on the need for humility in policymaking, lessons from regulatory policy. As she mentioned, it's an edited volume by myself and Ann Hobson. The volume which came out with Roman and Littlefield International this year uh, highlights policy research by alumni of the MA Fellowship Program, which you heard about from my bio and Ann's. Um, and also what we think is a major lesson for policy, humility. Um, in this presentation, I'll go over the framework utilized in the book to examine policy. And then Ann will discuss the contributors and some of the case studies used. And we hope to have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so I hope while you made it out here today in the cold, you're also ready to talk about these ideas and to consider a more humble approach to policymaking. All right, so sort of startups off the bat, why humility, uh, particularly in policymaking, particularly in this time period of policymaking? Uh, policymaking as a modern context is built upon the tradition of professional bureaucracy that was implemented and advocated by Woodrow Wilson and the rise of the progressive era. Technocrats can tweak the market to stem market failures. They can redistribute wealth to better serve citizens. They can negotiate security threats and aid other countries in time of war and humanitarian crises. Government can nudge citizens to better align their actions with their goals or incentivize behavioral changes. Policy wonks spend their days debating the nuances of particular policies, arguing for tweaks and adjustments that would better serve the population. To think about it in the terms of regulatory policy, it's even kind of more stark as it's grown more technocratic over time, many in attempts to do better regulations to better serve the people. We look at particular issues like, can we, can we get, put a price on people's lives? How do we figure out which alternatives have the best costs and benefits? These are all in efforts to get us to think about alternatives and to possibly think about when we might not uh, do regulation. But even in this push for a more technocratic, but potentially more humble approach to regulatory um, policymaking, we don't necessarily see assessments after the fact or adjustments after the fact or repealing regulations that might no longer work. 
And so this book tries to look at how we might take that approach and think about how to be more humble, particularly in regulatory policy. Expertise is the prime currency for policymaking. It's formal administrative training, scholars who have spent their lives discussing these ideas, and leadership skills from other sectors become really pop popular. Politicians love to talk about expertise as well. We hear about the role that business owners can, can come in and shake up with policymaking. President Trump, while campaigning for the presidency in 2016, boldly claimed that only I can fix it. His claim that his skill in business would make him an effective president persuaded many. Now, Michael Bloomberg has entered the Democratic primary race, saying he is actually the businessman who can beat Trump and fix Washington. He says he's a doer and a problem solver, not a talker. But if we want to have a more humble approach to policymaking, if we want to figure out what might work best for um, the, the nation, we might need to talk a little bit before we do. And so how do we think about that as we're going through it? We might turn to policy wonks as political leaders. And with that, we see examples as Elizabeth Warren running that she has a plan to implement for many of her policy issues that she talks about on the campaign trail. The role for policymaking and policymakers and analysts is ever growing. You might say it's a great time to be in DC and have some pretty good uh, job security for all of us working in policy. Yet, the world is messy and complex. Circumstances change, new information enters our lives every day, and so does innovation. The political, economic, and social life is dynamic and it's interconnected. The 2008 financial crisis is a good example of this. It wasn't any particular sector, maybe one could be blamed more than others that we might think about here, but it wasn't necessarily just the fact that banks were trying to get a lot of people to own homes. It was also that government had to stand in that and that altogether people were making these decisions that were impacted by, um, by government action, by drives to own homes and, and to build communities in a way that we might not have others, otherwise seen. This interconnected policy impacts market activity, new innovations change the bureaucratic landscape and the landscape for regulation. Welfare is the subject of government, but also of civil society. Tweaking the system leads to all sorts of consequences and changes. And an important consequence of policy is that it affects real life humans who can learn and adapt. Let's consider a policy aimed at reducing the consumption of junk food. We just had a holiday weekend. We probably all overindulged a little bit or hope that we did if we stayed true uh, uh, to our diets or plans. So let's say we might get on board with an idea that a soda tax would help us change our behavior and drink less soda and consume less junk food. Depending on the tax and its structure and how many things are impacted, people might just shift their activities to different sugary drinks that they're interested in. Um, uh, notoriously, in a lot of these soda tax, things like frappuccinos, certain energy drinks, or even really sweet tea, if you're from the South, aren't implemented in those, in those policies. And of course, the policy might not adjust behavior at all if the tax is too low. And that might be true if the real goal isn't to change behavior but to increase revenues uh, and not necessarily curb the bad eating habits of our fellow citizens. Another example is to consider the ingenuity of the sharing economy, where people engaged in what our colleague Adam Thier calls permissionless innovation. They disrupted lodging and transportation sectors in a way we could never have anticipated, and regulators had to take a step and try to catch up after they were implemented. Many occupational licensing that was utilized before became ineffective, and there was backlash, but also an attempt to figure out uh, how this new dynamic system was gonna impact society. Now today, we have hopefully less drunk drivers because there's more uh, Ubers and taxis around to do so. We can think about all the different ways that we can travel and feel more at home with Airbnb and other places. However, the sharing economy isn't all roses. Now that they've been implemented and they've been able to push some regulations back, they're now lobbying for some of their own regulations and to keep some of their competitors at bay. And so this complicated world where we might have a hero one day and a lobbying organization we need to worry about the next matters when we think about policy. 
Another way to think about this is the rich evade higher taxes. Teenagers know how to sneak into their houses after they've broken curfew. People figure out the parking spots that are less likely to get ticketed if they don't have. Uh, it's particularly true on the Fairfax campus uh, of DreamU, figuring out how to kind of get around some of the high parking fees. People are crafty and they're incentivized to get around overly burdensome and costly regulations. Whether imposed by themselves, their parents, their community, or their government. And particularly when we're thinking about kind of broad brush policies at the federal level, those are gonna have major unintended consequences, particularly with all sorts of communities. Some like the soda tax might not deal with or affect a good chunk of the population who isn't interested in eating a lot of junk food. Uh, it might, in fact, maybe be regressive and hurt low-income populations more than anticipated. So how do we go about understanding behavior and the implications of policy? Our book and our perspective talks about what Pete Becky, one of our colleagues, calls mainline economics. And we think mainline economics provides the framework needed to study this messy and complicated world and to bring about a more humble policymaking. For all the legitimate concerns and more than a little bluster about China's unfair trade practices, how does the country respond when challenged at the World Trade Organization? Wei Wanzhou is author of China's Implementation of the Rulings of the World Trade Organization. He spoke at the Cato Institute in December. So the book, um, the completion of the book dragged for about a couple of years. Um, but the issue we're asking, or the question we're asking today, remains very alive, which is, does China comply with the, the rulings or the rules of the WTO? Um, that question has many aspects into it, and the answer to, that quest, to, to those questions or the different aspects might differ, um, depend on which aspect you're looking at it. So, um, there are two particular aspects that we're gonna discuss today, as Simon alluded to. One is whether China complies with the WTO obligations in general. And the second one is whether China complies with the WTO rulings against it when China lost a case. So um, the book is focusing on the second question, the secondary compliance, if you like. But we're gonna talk about both of the questions today, maybe in the Q&A session. Um, but let me just focus on the first question by now, um, the, 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 the compliance with the WTO rulings. Um, the book was completed around the same time last year. By the time, there were about 43 disputes against China uh, as a respondent involving 30 matters. Now, since then, there has been one more dispute, I think. And then there is, uh, among the 30 disputes, China has been a respondent and lost, lost all of the, most of the cases um, in 12 disputes. And in 10 disputes, China chose to, uh, to, to reach a mutually agreed solution with the complainants, which means that China either modifies or um, removes the mayor's concerns without going through the adjudication process. Within the 12 disputes that China lost the WTO case and has to implement, China implemented almost in all cases there was only one case where China failed to implement completely. Now, let me be clear. The cases may involve many, many aspects, many, many issues there, and the findings of the WTO tribunals could involve um, different, uh, different issues or different findings or violations. China's compliance has been very well because China complied in almost all cases except for one. Now the two issues, one in relation to the restriction on trading rights um, in relation to films. China reached a compensation deal with the US um, basically by providing more market access to the US in exchange for non-compliance. 
The second aspect in the same case, which is the China publications, the audiovisual product case, China actually removed the prohibition in relation to the right for foreign investors uh, enterprises to run network music activities. But after that, China did not publish any law or regulation for foreign investors enterprises to follow in applying for approval to run such businesses. So that was considered as a partial compliance. But only in those two issues, aspects, that China failed to comply. In all of the other cases involving many, many other issues, China complied completely. Now, when I say China complied completely, there is another nuanced issue we need to bring up, which is um, trade remedy cases. Now, in trade remedy cases, China's compliance is a little bit more trickier because China's approach has been to reinvestigate um, re um, the same matter after an adverse WTO ruling. That means that the final outcome of the reinvestigation could either be the removal of the existing duties or continuation of the existing duties uh, at the same or modified rates. Now, we can come back to this point in the Q&A session, but the general point I want to make is that despite that, um, compliance issues in trade remedy cases is not a China-specific issue. If you want to take a, an example of Azerian cases um, and also other trade remedy cases, um, you can see the issue is general, uh, generally applicable to all WTO member, members, and especially the major users of trade remedies. So I think the overall conclusion is that China has maintained a very well record, very good record of compliance. I think from my, from my comparison, um, I haven't done a comparison in the book, but the comparison uh, with the US records, the EU records, China has maintained a better record of compliance. And also consider the fact that China has, been sub, has not been subject to any request for authorization for retaliation in the system. So which, again, indicates that China has maintained a quality uh, compliance in most of the cases. Now, what is the policy implication from that? The policy implication is that the WTO dispute settlement mechanism has been effective in reducing China to make changes that is one of the um, reasons I think that the current administration has been wrong in um, at least diminishing the function and the effectiveness of the system. What WTO members should continue to do is to use the system effectively to continue to push China to make necessary changes in policymaking and regulation. So that is the, that, that is the main policy um, implications I think that I need to uh, emphasize on. Um, having said that, China has many issues after compliance in individual cases. Now, these issues, I just mentioned two major ones I, I think it's quite important. The first one is implementation and transparency, which means that once you have a revised law in China in compliance with WTO rulings, the implementation process um, must be monitored effectively and continuously. Now, to be able to monitor it, we need to have a transparency system in China to really say whether at both the central and local levels, China has implemented the revised law in an effective way. That has been missing, and that's one of the major issues I think uh, currently we're still having um, in relation to China's post-compliance activities. The second one is what, we, um, what I turned as a repetitive violation. It's really concerns about um, the new development of regulation in China to deal with the same regulatory objectives. Um, in those areas, China may use similar measures for the same purpose, consider the export restrictions on raw materials and rare earths. Um, in these cases, the repetitive violation is likely because 
it's a very similar measures trying in pursuit of the uh, very similar objectives uh, just after a finding of violation by WTO tribunals. But again, that is not a China-specific issue. One, all of the WTO members can use the weakness of the system, which is, as, as Jim and uh, Simon have written a paper about it, it's a lengthy litigation and compliance process, which provides significant gap for temporary breaches. And one of the um, solutions, as Jim and Simon um, argue for, is to shorten the process and simplify the whole process so that you have a shorter time um, for, for any potential temporary breach. Another solution, as I would argue, but as has been talked about for a long time, is to introduce retrospective remedies. Um, Having said that, I think one last thing I want to mention is we need to be careful when we assess, when we assess the uh, objectively whether any country complies with the WTO rulings. The dispute settlement mechanism itself has its limits. So in individual cases, the rulings will be based on the issues brought by a complainant. And the final ruling, even though you may be overall in favor of a complainant, it may have more limited effects um, because you may not be fully in supportive um, of the complainants. So we need to really look at the specific aspects of a violation found by the WTO tribunals to, to, to be able to measure compliance objectively. But that also shows uh, the, lim the limitation of the dispute settlement mechanism itself. Uh, but despite that limitation, I think um, the WTO's dispute settlement mechanism has been very effective in inducing China um, in complying with the WTO rulings to make changes. If you ask the Chinese official, as I did, um, they will tell you that one of the most confident things that the government um, will tell you about their performance in the WTO in general is compliance with the rulings. And that has been treated as a priority by the government, at least um, in, in the past, 20, um, in, in the past um, 18 years. So I think, again, maintaining a functional dispute settlement mechanism is the way to deal with China. Um, if we are going to deal with any China-specific challenges in the future. Um, we need to maintain a functional dispute settlement mechanism, and we should continue to support um, the panel review mechanism as well as the WTO or the multilateral training system in general. At the Cato Institute's surveillance conference held late last year, a variety of experts came together to lay out their concerns about surveillance. We feature two speakers from that conference. First up, Greg Nojaim with the Center for Democracy and Technology details the global implications of an America First surveillance policy. Also from Cato's surveillance conference in December, Chip Gibbons with Defending Rights and Dissent offered his thoughts on the FBI's ongoing problem of First Amendment abuse. Hello, everyone. Again, I'm Greg Nojime with the Center for Democracy and Technology, www.cdt.org. Um, I want to talk about the global implications of what I call America First surveillance policy. And when I say America First, I often mean Americans first. Uh, U.S. surveillance policy, particularly on the intelligence side of the equation, discriminates in favor of Americans and against foreigners in a fairly dramatic way when it comes to surveillance that occurs outside the United States. Inside the United States, it's actually relatively even between Americans and foreigners. Um, in both cases, when the government wants to surveil a person in the United States and collect their communications content uh, for intelligence purposes, it has to show 
that the person is an agent of a foreign power, an agent of an entity like a foreign terrorist organization or a foreign government. That requirement is a very high level of proof, probable cause, that the person is an agent of a foreign power. And it has to be done in front of a judge, in front of a judge um, in the super secret um, FISA court. But outside the United States, uh, international intelligence surveillance directed at foreigners doesn't have those protections. Um, if conducted under executive order 12333, there's no probable cause requirement, no requirement that the person be an agent of their government or of a foreign terrorist organization, and no judge making any determination at all. Um, any activities and intentions of a foreigner are fair game and bulk collection, that means non-targeted collection, uh, is acknowledged. Internationally for foreigners who are using US uh, cloud providers, um, it's the, the news isn't very much better. Uh, that surveillance is conducted under um, Section 702. You heard a lot about that on the last panel. Uh, suffice it to say, no probable cause, no determination that the target is an agent of a foreign power, and no judge is approving individual targets. Judges approve programmatic um, surveillance based on these certifications, but there's no um, uh, determination with respect to individual targets. And any information relevant to U.S. foreign policy or national security is fair game. So America first surveillance policies can dramatically impact the rights of foreigners because the standards are low and the US government's ability to access communications is very high, especially relative to other countries. It's high in part because so many of the large providers are located in the United States. But America first also diminishes the rights of Americans. And I say that because we Americans communicate more than ever with foreigners who are abroad. Even our domestic to domestic communications can be routed abroad where they might be subject to these more permissive surveillance regimes. By targeting foreigners, the US government collects communications of people in the United States intentionally incidentally, intentionally incidentally. That means we intend to collect the communications of Americans who are communicating with foreign targets. And that's called incidental communication, but it is intended. Um, by targeting foreigners applying low standards, the US government amasses a database of communications that includes many communications of Americans. And then it turns around and queries that data for Americans' communications without probable cause, without a determination that the American is an agent of a foreign power, and without judicial authorization. So the result of the America First surveillance policy is a diminution in the rights of Americans. Uh, by failing to extend even basic protections to the foreigners, we allow this database of communications to grow and grow quite huge, and it includes the communications of Americans uh, because uh, we often communicate with foreigners abroad and because some communications are collected in that database, even though they are domestic to domestic. So America First offers almost, offers very little protection to foreigners, and it also diminishes the protections that would be um, otherwise uh, available to Americans. Now, I've talked about America First in the intelligence context because that's where it's most pronounced. In the criminal, in the context of criminal surveillance, where the government is actually investigating a crime, there hadn't been, until last year, a distinction between Americans and foreigners. Everybody got basically the same rights. Um, the Cloud Act, adopted in 2018, for the first time, extended a version of America First to criminal sur surveillance. Under the agreement that the United States just entered into with the UK, the UK can compel disclosures of stored content and of content in real time under UK law 
which is more permissive than is U.S. law, of all surveillance targets except for Americans and except for people physically present in the United States. That's really the first time that criminal surveillance laws have distinguished between Americans and everyone else. America first on the criminal side of the equation can have the same adverse effect on Americans that it does in the intelligence side. Uh, for example, under the Cloud Act, the UK can share back to the United States government communications that involve Americans that were incidentally collected when others were targeted. Uh, that sharing back is done without probable cause, without the intervention of a judge. Now, the next big test for whether we will continue to extend America first, which, as I've, as I've said, is not even protecting Americans, the next big test is going to be a treaty that's currently being negotiated between the United States, the Council of Europe, and other governments. That treaty is a protocol to an existing treaty called the Budapest Cybercrime Convention. This protocol is designed to permit cross-border demands for communications traffic data, think of an email log, for example, and for subscriber information. The theory of this, uh, of provision five of this protocol will be that parties who sign it will be required to give effect. Those are the, that's the language of the current draft. To give effect to the orders issued by other signatory countries to this convention for traffic data and for subscriber information. So uh, this is not about content. It's for traffic data and for subscriber information. How would a country give effect to the foreign order? Well, the, the protocol says how it could do that. It could do that by accepting it as equivalent to a domestic order, by endorsing it, or by issuing its own legal process, which I presume would be based on facts that are provided by the foreign government. The U.S. could give effect to a foreign order to, for example, disclose a log of your email or your browsing history, I think, uh, based on a demand issued without judicial review from a Budapest Cybercrime Convention protocol signatory like Hungary, Turkey, Russia, Albania, or Ukraine. Ukraine. Did I say Ukraine? <laughs> yes, Ukraine. It is a signatory to the Budapest Convention, uh, the Cybercrime Convention. Presumably, it will sign the protocol to the Budapest Cybercrime Convention. A mile down the road from this conference, there is a big discussion among members of Congress about whether to remove from office the President of the United States because he attempted to list Ukraine in an effort to investigate his political rival, um, Joe Biden, through his son, Hunter Biden, who had a position on the board of directors of a uh, company in Ukraine. How would Ukraine investigate Hunter Biden? What would it do? More than half of criminal investigations today involve electronic evidence. One could presume that what the Ukraine would do, what Ukraine would do would be to seek email logs from Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, presumably using a US provider, his email logs are stored by that provider and could become uh, available to the foreign government under the Budapest Convention. Today, even today, the providers can volunteer this information. Um, US law has a flaw. In my view, it's a flaw that permits foreign governments to obtain uh, even your email logs without there being any um, restriction except what the foreign government itself uh, applies. The name of the report is still spying on dissent, the enduring problem of FBI First Amendment abuse. 
And as the name would indicate, both by the still spine as well as the enduring problem, that this is a continuous problem, it's not a new one, and it's been with us for a long time. So what does it mean that we have this long history of FBI political surveillance? Well, at a certain point, we no longer start to treat these types of revelations as exceptional. They either become very normalized or they become very sort of almost invisible. You know, conversely, if you talk to activists, they'll make jokes like, oh, we know the FBI spy on us, or oh, we know someone's infiltrating us. They, they treat it as normal. On the other hand, because it's not exceptional and therefore not always newsworthy, people who should know better will not even realize it's going on. Uh, a few years ago, I was accompanying a, a gentleman from an anti-war group who had been spied on and infiltrated by the FBI to meet with congressional offices. And we were asking for Congress to investigate that surveillance as well as a surveillance against Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. I won't say what office we were in, but the representative was very concerned about the Fourth Amendment, very concerned with the, with the NSA, and the staffer we were talking to was very up on those issues. And we, we went through the whole presentation and laid out all of the facts, and, and the staffer just said to us, I had no idea the FBI still did that. Um, so it's, it's sort, of, sort of perverse. On the one hand, the fact that it's an enduring problem means we accept it as normal, or on the other hand, People who should know better act like it's no, doesn't realize it's going on. And I think one of the reasons we wrote the report is to push back on this narrative we see. There's a lot of bad narratives uh, in the media about the FBI. But one in particular I find troubling, which is when we treat these instances of abuse as isolated incidents. So when we are so lucky that someone in the mainstream media will cover an FBI abuse, they'll be like, oh, the FBI visited Standing Rock water protectors, or oh, new documents show the FBI spot on Occupy Wall Street. But they never say, hey, today we learned the FBI was knocking on the doors of water protectors. Last month, we found out they were knocking on the doors of Palestine solidarity activists. And last year, we discovered that they were spying on Occupy Wall Street, indicating that the problem is widespread, severe, systemic, and part of a 110-year political tradition on behalf of our friends in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, so by putting together all of these different incidents since 2010, and, and the reason we picked 2010 is not just because it's the end of the decade, though that would have been a good reason to do so, but because in 2010, the OIG for the Department of Justice released a report called A Review of the FBI Monitoring of Certain Domestic Advocacy Organizations. As you can tell, since they got the more um, exciting title, we had to settle for the more banal title of, of still spying on dissent. Um, but that's the last time there's been an official review of FBI spying. And that review covers the Bush era, released in 2010, but covers, covers the Bush era. And just four days after the OIG released that report, the FBI was raiding the homes of anti-war and Palestine solidarity activists across the Midwest. So... What's happened since 2010? What do we know about? We know that before the first protester ever set foot in Zakati Park, the FBI was monitoring Occupy Wall Street. We know that the FBI was monitoring Black Lives Matter as early as Ferguson, and extremely disturbingly, they have come up with an intelligence assessment about the threat of black identity extremism. And the logic behind this assessment is extraordinarily insidious. It says that if African Americans are upset about police violence, police racism, and social injustice, they may engage in lethal retaliatory violence against police, and police should be aware of this terror threat. And we know through other leaked documents, they created an entire program called Iron Fist. Think about that name for a minute. Iron Fist to quote-unquote, mitigate the threat of black identity extremism. And what that argument is saying is that not only is it that First Amendment protected political expression is some sort of precursor to criminality, but people by being rightfully upset at social injustices that are pervasive in our society, that they experience, they endure, they should, that is a precursor to crime. Um, other things we know about is they were at Standing Rock, they've visited a bunch of um, 
anti-pipeline protesters. They've been visiting the homes of Palestinian solidarity activists. And I also spent about five years pursuing a FOIA request and lawsuit against the FBI in relationship to their surveillance of pro-Palestine groups that hopefully you'll be hearing about more about later this month. Um, we know that they were at Occupy and Abolish ICE. We know they've been at pretty much every, ma- they've visited proponents of Cuban normalization at their homes and asked them questions. So we know that pretty much every major political movement of the last decade, the FBI has been there watching, monitoring, surveilling, and in some cases, engaging in disruptive uh, tactics I'll talk about later. So... Although the report is about 2010 to the present, I hope you'll permit me to go back in time just a few years uh, to 1908, which is when the FBI was founded while Congress was on recess. And to this day, the FBI has no congressional charter, no legislative charter, which is something that's been consistently very vexing to civil libertarians like myself. Uh, In 1919, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's name was not yet on a building, but he was getting his start at the then Bureau of Investigation in what was originally called the Radical Division, not because they were radical, but because they were spying on radicals, and what was later renamed the General Intelligence Division. And I I know this seems like ancient history, it's 100 years ago, but there's some really important things to extrapolate from this. First of all, This is not abnormal. It's not just Hoover is a a weird guy. Sometimes histories of surveillance will get very personalized about him. I mean, different police departments around the country were developing what were called red squads, which, like the radical division, were also intelligence divisions, which brings me to my second uh, part of the equation, which is that the FBI is not only a law enforcement agency, and in theory, law enforcement is about gathering uh, evidence that can be used to prosecute a crime we can dispute whether or not that's what they really do or not, but that's that's the theory. But also about intelligence, which is far more permissive and far more broad. And that so you have this trend of people who think that it's valid for police to have intelligence divisions like the Red Squad, like the General Intelligence Division, to track you know, labor unrest, anarchists, socialists, and other sort of undesirables, and that Hoover comes out of that tradition and then becomes the director of the FBI. The United States ranks 15th in the fifth annual Human Freedom Index, the most comprehensive measure of freedom ever created for a large number of countries around the globe. Co-published by the Cato Institute, the index presents the state of human freedom in the world based on 76 distinct indicators of personal, civil, and economic freedom. Visit Cato.org today and download your copy of the fifth annual Human Freedom Index and learn more about the state of human freedom. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.